This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Over the course of the show, we have covered dozens of stories of misconduct in church and ministries. As longtime listeners of Quick to Listen know, we've often covered these issues by telling you the deeper story of a particular group of people or organizations. But it can also be helpful to look at the practices and behaviors from a 10,000-foot level and observe larger trends. One particular workplace practice that has increasingly come up are non-disclosure agreements. So according to a recent World Magazine story, and I'm going to quote from it, NDAs appeared to have started as a way to protect trade secrets in the tech industry in the mid-20th century, according to a Columbia Journalism Review history of the term. But companies quickly began using them to protect all sorts of information. And, reporter Emily Bells notes, this practice from corporate America is now common among religious nonprofits. Then we wanted to discuss why this practice has become so common among Christian ministries, who it serves, and who it hurts. Today is Wednesday, November 5th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. All right, Mark. So I thought we should do our gut check today just about the idea of non-disclosure agreements and how when you hear that Christian ministries are using this practice, what does that make you feel? To be frank, it makes me feel a little nervous. Now, I will say, though, that Christianity Day has used them upon occasion in the past with employees as they're leaving the company. As I've done some thinking about it, I realize there are some really good reasons to do non-disclosure agreements, as we'll probably unearth during this conversation. There are some downsides. So I'm I've not given it a great deal of thought and just anxious to give it a little more thought. I I should say, told my wife this morning that this was the topic. She said, what are you doing that for? And I explained, she said, wow, that is really going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of listeners who go, I didn't realize all that was involved. So The first context that I really remember thinking about them in a negative light happened during the Harvey Weinstein scandal. I mean, I guess the scandal's been going on for a long time, but when this particular story was unearthed about the way that he has been sexually harassing and mistreating different women and how they would be using NDAs apparently to conceal his behavior. I think the the bigger takeaway that I got there, though, is that I just don't understand what NDAs are and all the different contexts that they can be used. Like, are they only used for outgoing employees? Can you impose them on other people? You know, do they have to deal with settlements? Like some of the larger water that they swim in as far as like being helpful tools is something that I don't necessarily like intuitively get or understand. But Right now, I would say that they're like associated in my mind with like, you have something to hide. Like, that's how I like yeah, exactly. interpret them. We And as I was telling you the other day, we have an informal, most most outlet, most journalism offices have an informal non-disclosure agreement, which means you don't tell other other people what, what you're going to be covering in the next month, unless they have a vital interest to know, like your advertising department or whatever. And you don't share information shared confidentially in an editorial meeting so that people can speak their minds. We never actually write that down and make people sign a piece of paper. We assume 
And sometimes when people don't know it, we say it. But that's essentially a non-disclosure agreement, although it's not legal in any way. But it is it is it is a non-disclosure agreement, essentially. Yeah. yeah, which is why when I hear NDAs, I think, oh, you can sue people. You know, anyway, if you violate them. Yeah. yeah. But we'll talk about all of this today. So actually, Emily is our guest. Do you want to tell people a little bit about her? Yeah, Emily, someone I've read for some years now, admired her work. She's a senior reporter for World Magazine, currently based in New York City. Before that, she worked for World Out of D.C. And as she told me, she covered everything from chess to homicides, which gave me an idea for a novel when I retire. So there you go. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you on here. Emily, maybe you can just tell us why you first got interested in this subject. I think that World has been dealing with this and its reporting since before I was born. Since I've been on staff, we've run into this so many times with subjects that we've interviewed where some sort of misconduct would happen at an organization or a college or a university. And the person would talk to us initially and then not want to go on the record and because of some sort of confidentiality agreement. What happens often is that someone will leave an institution over some sort of misconduct and will quietly sign some severance agreement. Then the institution can't really give any sort of detailed reference to the next institution that hires that person. We've seen this happen so many times where there's just not information sharing between institutions because of fear of liability. And often that goes back to confidentiality agreements. This is something that's been in the back of our minds a lot for many years as journalists, that it's just a brick wall that we run into a lot. So we wanted to look into some of the nerdier details of it here. And again, let me talk about the informal nature of how organizations work. When I was a Presbyterian pastor, let me put it this way, in the ways of the world, it is considered wise not to say when you're asked for a reference from someone who's worked in your organization, applying for another, and you, you've you been put down at a reference, it's just considered business as usual not to say anything negative about the person. The best you the best you want, because you, because you might be fear of being sued, whether there's a non-disclosure agreement or not. There's just a lot of practices we do now, whether they're non-disclosure agreements or not, that prevent us or discourage us from really being frank about someone's behavior with us. And I've seen that I've seen detrimental effects in the Presbyterian Church where a pastor got passed on who who'd committed adultery in one congregation, he got passed on to another, did it there, got passed on to another, and in each case <laughs> the church never knew. What the heck? Yeah. I mean, it, let's be fair. He repented, he went through counseling, he did all the things you're supposed to do, so they figured no sense of mentioning it. He's past that. Well, that's the way people thought about things. 50, 20, well, I was, it's been 30 years since I've been in the pastorate. But anyway, that gives you an idea of what's going on. One thing I learned in the course of reporting this is that a key to a successful lawsuit is being able to specify the damages caused. And so in, in those cases, it's really easy for a plaintiff to show the damages if you're not hired by a church because of some reference that your previous employer made. You can very easily show a court, I was prevented from this salary, which was this amount. And so it's much easier to bring a lawsuit in those cases. All right. I actually want to back up a little bit. So I'm going to use a hypothetical situation that I'm sure happens in many of these instances. So let's say that you are the executive director of this like Orphan Care Christian Ministry. Morgan yeah. Lee Orphan Care Christian Ministry. Okay. I am, no, no, I am not using myself as the subject. I'm using a hypothetical person. Okay. Um, and this person you're about to commit misconduct. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> exactly. Mark did not understand that. I hope you know. So anyway, so this executive director ends up sexually harassing, you know, let's say like four different young employees over the course of two years, and now they want to get this person fired. 
why can't they? I, I'm, I'm very confused here. First of all, like, why is this person going to get a severance? And two, why not just fire them for sexual harassment? Why is there any type of secrecy about any of this type of thing? Why can't they just fire this person? I feel like I'm missing something there in my understanding of this. And these people have signed a non-disclosure agreement? Well, I these thought four. we were talking about people who have committed misconduct who then end up signing NDAs. Who are the people that are signing NDAs in this situation, Emily? I'm sure... Mark's dealt with some of this in personnel issues. I mean, maybe not that extreme of an example, but NDAs can have such a wide use and they can be specific to a situation like that, but they can also just be very broad. I think that the the issue for an institution is how much can we spend on litigation? And so even if in that scenario that you just painted, those those people don't have a case that will hold up in court, then it's not worth it for the organization to spend probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to be willing to go to court over that. So that's the point of private settlements is we're going to have this person leave the organization without litigation and save ourselves a lot of money. But I will say that pretty much everywhere, non-disclosure agreement doesn't protect you from subpoenas and that sort of thing. So someone could bring, those employees could bring criminal charges against that person or file their own lawsuits that wouldn't involve the organization. So then you start to get into the messy legal weeds, but. Okay. So let me, I think I understand now. So if you're like said executive director that has sexually harassed people, presumably, I guess the assumption is you're going to want to say, no, I did not actually do that organizations are betting that, oh, if we fired you straight off for sexual harassment, you're going to turn around then and sue the organization for them firing you, what you feel like was unfairly. Kind of the NDA comes out of things ahead of time. People sign the NDA as kind of a like, please do not sue us, then you would give them severance. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to remember that NDAs are focused on the organization. The question is, did the organization somehow enable this executive to remain in power and not, did they know about the harassment and they didn't do anything about it? That's where they would face liability. They're not going to face liability over his direct actions unless it's a sign of the organization's negligence, because that's a, those would be cases between, as far as I understand it, again, I'm not an employment lawyer, so I could be making some misjudgments here, but the cases between the employees and the person who committed the harassment would be separate from whether the institution is liable. Interesting. And then there's another type of NDA too, right? Like, so if I am the person that was sexually harassed in this situation, from what we were talking about earlier with the Harvey Weinstein situation, there's there's also a situation in which I end up leaving the company and signing an NDA as well. Is that correct? Yeah, you could agree to a settlement from, you know, the company could say, we'll give you $40,000 just as a settlement. We don't and make this you sign this NDA to say that you won't file any suits against us, make this all go away. That can be a way to treat employees well when something hasn't happened. And, you know, these if a meritless suit comes, you're just you don't want to go to court as an organization that saves you a lot of money. The the normal situation would be that if you're a victim and you're signing an NDA, it's because you got a settlement and you're agreeing to take that money on the condition that you won't talk about it. Thank you for going over all of this type of stuff. In your research, Emily, then when did you start noticing that both corporations started employing these and then later nonprofits? There's not actually a lot of history about how NDAs came to be, but the Columbia Journalism Review tried to pull as many scraps together as they could. And it really was a corporate practice to protect 
trade secrets. And so initially it was used in a very narrow sense, but then I think in the eighties, they just proliferated. So everyone started using NDAs just as a way to protect against liability that spread to the nonprofit world. I mean, just from my anecdotal experience reporting this piece, it seems like churches and nonprofits are using the same lawyers who do employment litigation for corporations. And so the lawyers are saying, you know, this is what we do in this scenario. So you all should do the same thing if you want to be smart. There aren't very many lawyers who are doing specific nonprofit church-related work. It's usually somebody who makes most of their money doing employment policies for large corporations. And then on the side, they'll do some church HR type work. So then they're giving the same advice that they would give to a corporation, essentially. I would just put an exclamation point on the fear of lawsuits. So that's one factor in this that has changed the landscape, how quickly and how easily and how much money is involved in many lawsuits. And I've been in more than one corporate conversation where that's that's the issue at hand. One one significant lawsuit could could put world under underwater. It could put Christianity Today underwater. It could put World Relief underwater. So the executives in those situations have to think very carefully, prudently, wisely, and morally about what their obligations are. It's not an easy world to negotiate right now. I mean, one lawyer told me that employment cases start on the low end at $50,000. So yeah, and it multiplies from there. Yeah. I remember one story we published and someone was going to sue us and yeah, we were calculating the cost. It was going to be a million dollars. And then all the hassle involved, all the, all the records you have to turn over. And it's just, <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible world we live in, in that respect. Another lawyer that I talked to just said, you know, if you're not, if you're disclosing every settlement that you make, then everyone's coming for a piece of the pie. Confidentiality in settlements is something that we have to live with. I think the question is, what parameters do you put on that. And some churches, I think, are, I mean, the Catholic Church has wrestled through that and has come to the conclusion that they're going to disclose settlements on sexual matters, but the Protestant Church is still trying to figure out what to do. Do you know what was behind the Catholic Church deciding to publicly reveal that information? I think there was a lot of pressure. I mean, this was back in 2002, they officially decided that they would disclose settlements. But what I found is that since then, they've still specific dioceses have still concealed settlements. There doesn't seem to be an enforcement mechanism to keep them disclosing settlements, but they had a lot of public pressure just related to all the the sex scandals as they came out, that this would be a good way of transparency to show some of the more serious settlements. But Cardinal McCarrick settlements, many of them were never disclosed and those were post-2002. So it's something that is still filtering through. But I talked to one one lawyer in Texas who's an employment lawyer who actually does, he does these settlements for a job. I mean, that's what he makes his money off of. And he he wrote to the head of the U.S. Catholic Church and said, the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops, and said that he thought that they should disclose everything on a website. They should have the specific amounts because then parishioners would know how serious the allegation was. So this is somebody who deals with this on a day-to-day basis. And I imagine that the Catholic Church would take that kind of advice more seriously from someone who knows how important confidential settlements are to the survival of institutions, but also wants to preserve the health of institutions in the long term by having transparency. I I think there's more pressure from within the church 
to try to make this a little more transparent. Now you're a reporter, and so you may not want to answer this question. So that you you sound like that's a positive move in the Catholic Church, which I would I would think it is, but it's not happening in Protestantism. So. You would hope that would happen in Protestantism as well? The What happened in Texas was a, maybe a good measure. This year, you know, there was that huge expose in the Houston Chronicle about sexual abuse in Baptist churches and how pastors move from place to place without, or other leaders without much accountability because of confidentiality. Texas, in response this year, passed a law that allows churches or other nonprofits to disclose sexual misconduct allegations to future employers, as long as it's in good faith, which I think those parameters are good because if it's clear that there's some sort of slander in in that or bad motivations in in sharing that information, then the institution would still be open to liability. I think the Texas measure was probably a good model for other Protestant churches that you can share that information in when an employer calls you, as long as it's in good faith. It's only in Texas. There's no other state that has that kind of statute. So it's very limited right now. I mean, if someone calls a church in Texas for a reference from out of state, they can't, they can't share that information because it wouldn't be covered outside of Texas. As we've mentioned now a couple times, this was originally something that was used to protect trade secrets. And clearly, <laughs> there's a difference between trying to protect trade secrets versus trying to hide sexual abuse that happened. And those to be able to nuance that by making the exception seems like it's a really smart thing to do. Emily, I'm just really curious, do you have a some sort of sense about like how many Christian ministries are using NDAs or just how popular they are or not? If only if it's like, you know, the biggest mega churches and the biggest Christian organizations or it's pretty standard protocol for almost all Christian ministries. Yeah, I think it's pretty widespread. And the reason I would say that is there's some form of confidentiality agreement in just about every, you know, when I did this story, I had, I asked people to send me their agreements from their workplaces if they had them. And I got a lot of material and it, it was varied. I'll say was, you know, one paragraph in a kind of employment handbook that would say, you know, we want to protect the confidentiality of our members or whatever. And then it would go as far as, you know, a five page contract that you're signing. That's much more, you know, much more of a legal document, I guess you could say. There's a wide variety, but I think they're they're throughout throughout Christendom. We we one of our star interns did the hard work of calling a bunch of mega churches around the country to ask what their policies were. I mean, a lot of churches, some of the biggest churches in the country use non-compete clauses. They use non-disparagement clauses. They use non-disclosure agreements in severance packages, most predominantly, but also just as a matter of policy. So I think that it is widespread, but that's that's my anecdotal experience. Practical example would be a pastor is leaving a church or asked to leave, and he might have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that he will not start a church within 50 miles of the church he's leaving. That's pretty standard. But as I recall, there are some mega church pastors that refuse to do that on principle. I think it was in your story that Rick Warren said, I don't care. I want more churches planted for Jesus. Is that a correct remembrance? Yes. Yeah, Saddleback has a policy against non-competes. They want, if somebody's going to leave, they want them to, I guess, plant more churches. It does seem to be, I mean, just from what we know, it seems to be a pattern that if you have a non-compete, it seems to be an indicator of ill health, that this is, you're in it for your brand, 
and trying to protect your brand and maybe not the larger, there's not a concern for the larger picture. So yeah, I mean, we saw that at Willow Creek and Harvest Bible and a few other places where, you know, Mark Driscoll's church and that whole situation, they were all non-compete clauses for that were required upon employment. I think you're right. It does signal something's amiss because churches that are into church planting, they will often ch- plant churches within five or 10 miles of the whatever. And they will also encourage some members from the home church to start going to that church. It's like, that's what you do when you plant churches. And uh, the fact that there would be these non-compete clauses because people are afraid they're going to take parishioners away or strikes me as something's amiss there in the thinking. We'll surely get an email about it explaining why that's important (laughs) anyways, and we will read it next week if someone sends it. (laughs) I was going to say, I do think that's interesting too. Well, I mean, there's assumptions in there about like how church planters, for instance, get their congregations, right? And I think that within the church planting world or one of the accusations that's made at various times, right, is that a lot of times there's just a pool of people who are already going to church and different church plants are pulling from that pool rather than actually being able to get people who aren't going to church, which that assumption seems to rely on there. And it also seems to rely on this idea that people go to church because they want to see the star, a.k.a. the pastor, right? And so if that star leaves, then people are going to be following that star as opposed to just staying at their church out of other reasons. So yeah, there's interesting assumptions there. I would also just add that these agreements and these clauses can sort of sometimes be like those iTunes terms of service agreements that you don't look at. And a lot <laughs> you, of churches- You may not, don't. Emily, but I stay. Uh, that's how I get to <laughs> sleep at night. I read those. <laughs> <laughs> That's how CT is running and healthy. Um, (laughs) Did you read the terms of service? Yeah. I, when our star intern called all these places, they, a lot of people just didn't even know that they had them. And then, you know, they would tell us we don't do NDAs. We don't have those. And then employees would send me their NDAs from that organization that just told us they didn't do NDAs. I think there's often, it's sort of a footnote that the church isn't even really aware of. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I was wondering, Emily, in your story, you list some specific examples of nonprofits that some of our listeners may know. And I'm wondering if you could just share with us some of the groups that you got the NDAs from and what their NDAs looked like. We got a lot of NDAs and decided not to write about them because of the potential for litigation <laughs> for uh, oh. these employees. So, um, a a, a it, universal you know, concern. To be honest, the lawyers I talked to said there aren't very many examples of courts actually enforcing NDAs for nonprofits. It's just a kind of cloudy area of law. They might not be liable if they broke the NDA, but they might. So 
they abide by the NDA. It's more of a deterrent than it is necessarily legally enforceable. But so we wanted to err on the side of caution. But I heard from someone who works at a Christian radio station who sent me their NDA, which was very broad. I mean, it said that he couldn't share any information of any kind about the radio station. Um, most of these agreements bar you from disclosing that the agreement exists, even. Um, <laughs> That and, that uh, is really amazing. So that, Sorry, but I'm yeah. just saying, like, <laughs> so, they expect you to lie about. The, wow. Okay. That agreement also had a non-compete for other radio stations in the area. I heard from an employee from Open Doors USA, which is an organization that is an advocate for persecuted Christians around the world, and they required uh, this person to sign an NDA as a condition of severance, which is also pretty common. But this is what I what I heard from a number of people is that you're getting laid off and you suddenly don't have a source of income. So there's a lot of pressure to sign that document unless you have some, you know, blockbuster allegation that you think is worth sharing with. This, this person did consider not signing it and decided that the family had to come first. And so went ahead with signing it. Talked to also someone at who was an employee at New Spring, which is a mega church in South Carolina, who was required to sign an NDA as uh, upon severance. And that included a non-disparagement clause, which also I, I think that's an interesting discussion because it does make sense. You don't you want people to cool their heads a little bit. If you get laid off, you probably want to say some negative things about the organization. But it's also just a strange thing for a church to say, don't you're not allowed to disparage us <laughs> as a condition of receiving this money when I don't know, to my mind, you could disparage them before you were laid off but um, and, and be subsequently laid off <laughs> yeah there you go there you go that's really fascinating too yeah i mean i find all of this stuff really interesting just to use a example from outside of this particular world last year i believe or 2 years ago espn laid off a bunch of writers that i read pretty regularly and i just remember one of them who's a baseball writer was writing articles still and posting them on facebook because he couldn't keep himself from writing, but he also had a non-compete in his severance where he wasn't allowed to get picked up by a different organization for, I think, six months or something, which I was, to be honest, I was extremely confused by because I'm like, you chose to lay him off. So why do you care if he goes to a, a rival organization? Because he worked, on, the only reason he left was because of the fact that he did that. Um, but I guess that was one of those things that was, you know, if you want the severance, situation, then you have to do that. I don't know. It just it, That just like struck me as really strange to have those types of provisions in there. One example would be, so you have an employee who has discovered it's been and proven to the, to the satisfaction of the HR department. This person has been lying about other people in the organization and has been lying, has been spreading false rumors about what's going on in the organization. It does seem like you'd, you'd want them, if on a condition of severance, that they wouldn't continue to lie and spread false rumors. I can understand why a company like, well, that's the only company I've had experience with, CT would do that. Although CT, because of its kind of sense of integrity. I don't, if someone actually had something that was actually wrong with the organization and needed to be exposed, they, it would be uncomfortable, but we'd, we'd go, okay, if it's truly wrong, let's, let's face it, let's get into it. But there are people will leave it and with a grudge and they actually work with a grudge and they will leave with a grudge and it could do tremendous damage to their reputation, to their ministry. So it is a tough line to walk. You're right. On the one hand, you think, why not? Just say, let them say whatever they want. But Wow. 
it can be devastating for uh, an organization and individuals in that organization. As a journalist, I tend to see the side of organizations being self-protective over these things. Whenever you question them about something that happens, there's a sense of if we let any anything negative come out, it's going to ruin our organization forever. And my perspective is obviously that sunlight is the best medicine. <laughs> you know, if somebody's going to say something negative about you, you can also respond to that. And so I, it does seem in some ways that the organization has the cards in its hand when it's paying the salaries and holding these these legally binding agreements over someone rather than just a covenant or some kind of more informal thing that you would say, you know, we're, we're not going to settle this publicly. We'll try it. You know, let's not go through all our dirty laundry out in the open. But I don't know, Mark, can you explain a little more maybe how the cards are not all in the organization's hands that that is because I, I usually see the other side of it. So just in the course of reporting. No, the organization has definitely a fair amount of leverage and power in any given employee-employer relationship. No no question about it. But given the new situation on the way information is spread on social media, organizations are also extremely vulnerable. I mean, that's a thing that don't people don't realize. They All they see is the strength and the power and the financial wherewithal of organizations. And the same thing is true of uh, church leaders. Pastors, yeah, a male pastor has a certain amount of authority and power over his staff, especially his female staff. At the same time, a simple, single allegation of misconduct, financial or sexual or whatever, that can be devastating for that church leader, that organizational leader, if even if it's not true. And so that's a tremendous amount of power that people on the other side have. And I'm, to be frank, I don't know how to adjudicate that. I just recognize the the, da- the dangers on both sides. Uh, I certainly, I would think that an organization needs to be as transparent as it possibly can, both for building trust over long term. And like you say, if something goes awry, say it and apologize for it and take steps to correct it. That's sort of been our policy uh, from, from an editorial point of view when we've, I have, as editor-in-chief, have had to apologize on more than one occasion for something we misreported badly or published inappropriately. And our policy has been, okay, if it's true, admit it, apologize, and keep going. And that has, it seems to have helped Christianity Today's reputation to to bring it to light, to admit it, and to move on. So I would think under normal circumstances, that would be a great policy for any organization. Yeah, I agree. And I think there is something in Christian organizations that there's a deep fear that that won't work out, that it won't be in their favor to be transparent. And I think it often is, but I haven't run an organization before. So <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit more about the journalism question, too. And Mark, you may be able to weigh on this as, as well. Just about talking to sources. Emily, how often have you ended up interviewing potential sources that, you know, have signed these particular NDAs? And how does your or organization handle protecting their confidentiality or even deciding to run their quotes or their information as background? What does that balance look like for you guys? We always want to protect sources who face who face consequences for talking to us about certain things. Um, we have a pretty strict policy on anonymity, so we very very rarely use anonymity, which is the the policy we have essentially is that if your life or livelihood are in danger, we will grant you anonymity. But that is a high bar to meet in most stories. I think normally, I mean, you see so many stories from New York Times, Washington Post coming out of D.C. that are 
anonymously sourced and it's just because it's DC and there's consequences for people talking and we're trying to avoid that. We try to encourage people to go on the record as much as possible just so you're able to know what their motivations are potentially because if you have an anonymous source there could be many things that you don't know that are happening in the background that you don't want to be used as magazine to advance their personal agenda or vendetta or whatever it may be. So that's kind of why we try to stick to using names as much as possible. In this case, obviously, I didn't use names for the people who had signed NDAs because it would be a either a threat to their livelihood or, you know, they would be under lawsuit for breaking the NDA. But it's, yeah, it's a thing that we wrestle through a lot because, yeah, you want to be, if we're talking about transparency, you want to be transparent in your reporting. So uh, not just require that of the institutions. Yeah. I mean, we have the same general policy. In fact, it frankly amazes me as the the paragons of journalistic virtue, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're always using anonymous sources. It's just amazing to me that they do that. They, I don't know. My and it bites them in the rear a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. So we discourage, I mean, there's been a couple of times we've have sat on a story because more than a couple of times, because we can't get anyone to go on the record. And every once in a while, I'll just say this story has just got to get out there and we can use an anonymous source, just one though, or something like that or whatever, really limited because man, it's just a matter of journalistic integrity there. It seems. The tricky part is the, the in-between stories, right. That are, you know, we've heard from people with kind of strange allegations about someone else, like stalking or something like that. That's not really a crime. And so it doesn't really rise to the level of needs to be reported. But also you kind of think that this detail should be public about a particular important person. So yeah, you you get into those spaces of trying to weigh at what level is this gossip? At what level is this when you don't have a specific crime or misdemeanor to, to put a label on something. Bill, the Willow Creek Bill Heibel story would be an example. I'm sure you have many in your history too, where we, we knew what was going on there for two or three years and we just couldn't get, especially one particular woman, to go on the record. She absolutely just refused to do it. And we just kept on trying to help her think about doing that. <laughs> for some reason, they the story was, ended up being reported by the Tribune, and they were able to find a couple people who were willing to do that. Of course, they have their resources are much deeper than ours, but we were really grateful that they were able to do that story because we, based on our standards, we weren't able to publish it. it is, so it makes it harder. I think Spotlight is such a good movie just to go over basic journalism practices, but just to see the value of pressing sources a little bit to understand the impact that they will have if they don't speak on other people and how sometimes it is important for them to lose a little bit in order for other people to be protected in those situations. Emily, as we wrap, I'm just wondering if there is any other prizing information that you learned over the course of reporting the story with regards to HR or employee policy that you wanted to share. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, and this is something I don't fully understand because, again, not an employment lawyer, but in a lot of scenarios, you know, institutions have insurance that will pay for settlements. And often one, one lawyer I interviewed told me that insurers require a confidentiality agreement if they're going to cover the settlement. So I think that's something that would 
be worth looking into more um, some journalist somewhere to see what insurance policies are on this, because that might prevent a church from following through on trying to be transparent if they don't have any insurance that's going to back them up. That's a good point. I just think people, yeah, I think what you've raised here in a couple different examples is the whole area of NDAs is fairly complex, and it's just not a matter of simply being transparent or not, simply being forthright or not. Uh, there's a lot of other things at play, and the more complicated an organization is, the more complicated things are at play. So this is not to excuse churches that use them in a way to hide evil. It does, I think, help us understand the the modern situation of the HR department. I have been surprised at the number of times over my career where I've thought we're going to do something, we should do something in a certain way, and the HR HR department says, well, actually, legally or whatever, we cannot do that. So, yeah, it's a uh, HR law is extremely complicated. It's so complicated. And I've gotten enough pushback from this story from lawyers and all the rest to know that there's a lot more to dig into here. So, uh, guaranteed employment, or at least guaranteed uh, <laughs> topics to write about as a reporter. <laughs> well, thanks for the conversation, Emily. People can tweet us at CT Podcasts. We are also available for emails. You can send one at podcast at christianneedtoday.com. So, if you have things that you want to nuance or give us more information about, send it our way. I do want to just remind everyone this podcast is made possible by all the subscribers of Christian Need Today magazine. And I want to just highlight some more articles that are in our current November issue. Mark, maybe you have a particular one you want to champion. You know, one of the things we try to discern in, in, uh, for our readers is to help them understand the conundrums of the faith and Bible teaching. So we have this teaching from Scripture that just said Jesus was tempted in every way. Was he ever tempted to, do, to, to embezzle money? Was he tempted ever to murder someone. I mean, he was in a life situation which would prevent him from being tempted in every single way. So what does that mean when Scripture says he was tempted in every way? And Oliver Crisp, he's a theologian out of Fuller Seminary, he just goes over the various ways theologians have thought about that. He doesn't particularly come to a conclusion because I don't know that there is one conclusion on this topic, but he helps you think about it in different ways of what it could and might mean. So if you're interested in exploring this very intense theological discussion. You can do that by becoming a subscriber to Christian Need Today magazine. And that is made possible by going to orderct.com slash podcast. That's orderct.com slash podcast. And there you can become an online subscriber and get access to all of our archives and get access to all of the stuff that's our current issue and also end up, if you want to, becoming a print subscriber as well and getting a copy of our magazine in the flesh. All right. Now is the time we call Precious Moments. Everyone can share something that has brought them joy. Mark, go ahead. Well, I listened to a a sermon last week, and it was about suffering. The pastor quoted Mother Teresa, who said something to the effect, when we suffer, it's, it's, it's as if we're receiving the kiss of Jesus. So this was not particularly a precious moment, (laughs) other than the fact that it was a startling image and startling insight that suffering is part and parcel of Christ's existence on not only in his lifetime, but especially on the cross. It's a reminder that that is part and parcel of our existence, and we are somehow more unified and more deeply embraced by Christ, and we can embrace Christ when we suffer. So I thought, that's an interesting idea. And then all weekend, I was doing fairly various and sundry chores with a pulled hamstring muscle and bursitis and all sorts of pains, and I kept thinking, Jesus, I really don't want to be kissed so much. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) 
Understandable. But anyway, it's just it's such a it's it's such a pleasure of mine in reading a book or hearing a sermon and have that that type of experience where one sentence you forget the rest of the sermon, mm-hmm. but the one sentence is so powerful it just sticks with you for days. Prick you later on. All right, Mark, where can people find you? I published something called the Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I report. ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report. You can get a sample there and subscribe. I encourage you to do it if you are interested in things that I'm interested in because that's kind of the main grid. If I read an article and I stick with it and I'm fascinated by it, it gets posted in The Galley Report with some comments. If I read an article that I think is important and you should know it, but it's boring as heck, it never gets in The Galley Report. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Emily, I think maybe you and I have the same precious moment, though it's one that's more significant for you. So please tell us. <laughs> this is shallower than Mark's. No, have- <laughs> sports pain is real too. I have watched the Washington Nationals since 2006, the year after they became a team. It's especially sweet this week. I mean, going from 2006, they were losing about 100 games a year, and it was just a dumpster fire. The 10,000 of us who would go to the stadium had a lot of solidarity. And then to see them overcome a very, very good team, the Houston Astros, just even though it's just a sports game, it does make you feel like impossible things can happen. I mean, I've been thinking that this week is feels very surreal. And then you think, no, this really happened. And it is really possible for this upstart team that was losing in the wild card game in the eighth inning to go all the way and beat all these great teams. I mean, there's so many just improbable stories in this team that you just have to love as a journalist. But I mean, one is their closer, Daniel Hudson, who was really took them through the playoffs in a lot of ways that he closed out so many great games. He wasn't even signed to the team at the beginning of the year. He wasn't signed to any team. So he was kind of floating in the out in space and then you know, at the beginning of the playoffs, he uh, went on paternity leave because his wife had a baby. So everyone was outraged. You know, it's key to their rotation. That's been a disaster in the regular season. The one, the one shining star has decided to go on paternity leave. Then he closed out the World Series. And so there's a million stories like that on this team. I just think it's a great team with so many good stories. And I can't wait to watch the, you know, 10-hour docuseries that I hope someone <laughs> makes. I would just want to disparage the remarks about disparaging play as something that's not important. I'll commit theology for a moment. A lot of theologians think of the kingdom of heaven as something that allows us to just enjoy play for for our existence. Because play, when you're watching even now, baseball, football, whatever, ping pong, golf, it's an activity that has no really ultimate purpose other than the joy of the activity itself. And it is, in that sense, it's a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven where joy is enjoyed God has enjoyed just for himself, not because it's instrumental, because it will make us a better person or make the world a better place. So I think there's there are really kind of some interesting themes when you talk about the theology of play. So you should just wallow in your joy right now because it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven in some ways. I'm going to embrace that word and <laughs> share, share it with all those around me. All right. Before you share your 
where people can find you after this, Emily. I was just going to, since I think we have the same or similar precious moments, I wanted to chime in here because I also just like think baseball playoffs are awesome. It's also really interesting when your own team is not playing because you can really just like experience a lot of the highs with none of the nausea. And <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. You can just be like, this is so fun. But like if the team that you like decided to have a crush on during the postseason is not playing well, you'll you'll be sad, but there won't be any of this like existential pit in your stomach that like whenever you think of this player who hit a home run off that closer, you know, in this game, you don't just feel sick, which is like definitely how you feel if you're actually a fan of that team and they, you know, go down in flames. I will just say that the the Nats, on top of just being like this like surprising team, I think the big reason why people really got on board with them is because they had a lot of love for each other. That is something that I think like people really like to see like public express expressions of friendship. I would say there were a lot of different personalities on the team that ended up hanging out with people who weren't like them. My favorite one was the fact that Nat's extremely, I would say, personality-less pitcher, who is nevertheless an ace, his name is Steven Strasburg, after he would come off the mound on the games that he started, he would get engulfed in a giant group hug that would last upwards of 10 to 15 seconds (laughs) by some of the other players who would just hold on to him and rock him back and forth. It was just fascinating to watch him soften and like I, I I would like to say Emily you can tell me if you, you think I'm wrong I think he learned to like look forward to that a little bit oh absolutely you never saw him crack <laughs> a smile ever before this <laughs> now he's just smiling and being hugged and it's a theology of joy right there, there. You go. They, Although, they all love each other well I will nuance it and re- I think Morgan brings up a good point being raised in the Bay Area San Francisco Bay Area I follow the Giants and still remember with a great feel of, of sadness bottom of the ninth Willie McCovey's up with runners on that, that could lead to the tie at least dying the game if not winning it hits two foul home runs then lines out to Bobby Richardson at second base just smack that ball but right at him and I still remember that my crestfall I was crestfallen then Sorry, folks. I'm still crestfallen today. <laughs> Haven't gotten over it. Yeah, you don't. But but championships do make things sweeter. All right, Emily, where can people find you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's my name minus the I and Emily. I'm also on our website, WNG.org. Awesome. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is available wherever you want to get your podcasts. If you end up going on to Apple Podcasts, though, please rate and review the show. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. And if you want to get a copy of the magazine, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash podcast. We'll see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.